Thanks, guys. Right, uh, if it's possible to pop across to, uh, to my screen here, that would be great. Yes, so we are talking about waiting, and I thought I would give you a sneak peek. Right, we are entering the season of Christmas, Christmas music, singing Christmas carols. We're all getting very, very excited, especially the band. Uh, so I thought, would you like a sneak peek of the band practicing for, uh, for our Christmas music? Here we go. <laughs> Has anyone seen this before? This is doing the rounds of the internet. I think this is a nativity play somewhere in America, possibly, with the wee darlings doing their best uh, on the Christmas carols. Right. Mostly been okay so far. Are you ready? Especially the one, whatever was the instrument that kept kind of going, um, was somehow managed to be the worst of a bad lot, but everyone stood to applaud. So, of course, that's not the band practice. I was only kidding. Uh, but actually, do you want to see a little sneak peek of the choir? You know, we've got this pop-up choir happening to sing our Christmas carols uh, uh, this year. So, you know, here's a sneak peek. This is uh, Jeffrey being very encouraging, as always. Try to eliminate any negative thoughts. All right, let's go. All right, right then, Niles. Right. Fall on your knees. <clears throat> Fall on your knees. Fall on your knees. You've got it, Dad. Oh, here. I hear sweet music. The angel boys. Your angel. kidding of course that's not the choir practicing and in fact um, I, I have heard great reports of Wednesday past did we have 30 or thereabouts angel voices and um, it's not too late to join us uh, right okay you could join uh, this Wednesday and next Wednesday eight o'clock practices to get ready for the carol service if you would still like to join you're not too late you will be you know stared and pointed at for being a Johnny come lately but you could join uh, the choir uh, and just be part of the fun of leading our Christmas worship this year but right next one is definitely definitely those were obviously not real sneak peeks but this one genuinely is uh, a little sneak peek of our nativity movie extravaganza this year. Uh, this year we are telling the entire Christmas story not in my words or Adrian's words or the words of a script. We are letting our amazing kids gathering tell the whole story in their words, which is a thing of wonder. So uh, here's a little sneak peek. And who is your favourite character in the in the Christmas story? The donkey. Mary. Mary. The camels. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the camels. Mary. Mary. I mean the donkey, the donkey. Because um, he probably knew what's happening the whole time and no one else did. And he looks really funny. Yeah. <laughs> who is your favourite character of the whole Christmas story? Of course, Jesus. Oh, 
<laughs> Except for Jesus. Uh, this, the donkey. Mary. I like that one. I like that one. This, this particular shepherd. I like that one too. You like I this like shepherd? I like that one too. It is going to be spectacular. I think of all of the many um, wonders, even in that little section, uh, my favorite is uh, Jack. Um, who's your favorite character? Baby Jesus, except for the baby Jesus. Oh, flip. Uh, so, <laughs> no, you can't say Jesus. Oh, flip. Um, so um, I, that is a very long-winded way of saying that this morning, I would like to tell you about one of my favorite characters of the whole Christmas story. Um, not the baby Jesus, oh, flip. Uh, not, it's, but genuinely, actually, in the Christmas story, I think the baby Jesus is just a baby. He's not really getting to do all that much yet. Um, I think all the bravery and sacrifice and courage and oh, just all of the amazing people are the people around him. And so this morning, I'd like to talk about John the Baptist and tell you why he is my favourite, one of my favourites of the whole story. So, uh, Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, remember, we've been going through, week by week, we've been going through this little kind of series of anticipation and waiting and looking forwards. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, Johnny and Lizette helped us to think about Abraham and Sarah, who were waiting for a baby, and they had years to wait, and those years of waiting were painful. And then last week, we were looking at Isaiah, and it says, uh, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And if Abraham and Sarah had to wait years for the fulfillment of their promise, Isaiah had to wait while well, he didn't get to see the fulfillment of his promise. It happened about 500 years later. So all that time passed. The promise was passed down from father to son to father to son. Generations, centuries uh, of time passing between the prophecy being made and the prophecy being fulfilled. Always strikes me that when we flick from the Old Testament, you know, we uh, pop these little quotes from Isaiah up on the screen, and then we can note how neatly those prophecies are fulfilled. And for us, it's just a matter of flicking forwards a few pages. Between Isaiah and Jesus was about 600 years between the end of the Old Testament, uh, and then we turn this page, and about 400 years pass in the turning of this page from the last page of Malachi to the first page of Matthew. 400 years of waiting and hoping and praying and dreaming and expecting. 400 painful years of waiting. And then John is at the end of that 400 year wait. He's the one that gets to say this is about to happen. Uh, and so he gets to spread the world. People went out to John from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by John in the Jordan River. And then ultimately, as we know, Jesus was baptized by John as well uh, at the start of his um, kind of ministry. So the first thing I love about John is that he 
He's the man at the end of this massive chunk of waiting, but he doesn't just wait passively. He doesn't do nothing. He doesn't just sit waiting for something to happen, something to fall out of the sky. He gets to work. He gets out there uh, baptizing, preaching, spreading the word, sharing the hope with people. And he gets a little following and people start coming from all over the place uh, to be baptized in the Jordan. So John, to me, is a reminder that waiting doesn't mean doing nothing. Waiting sometimes means starting with what you've got. And this, as you know, has been my, my story through these last 10 years uh, of your life when you are waiting and hoping and dreaming of something. And 10 years ago, what I was dreaming of was community in the Titanic quarter. And rather than do nothing, you just have to start with what you've got. And so 10 years ago, what started with some deck chairs uh, and some shabby looking um, kind of uh, morning coffee, coffee stops uh, out in the open air in the Titanic Quarter apartments. The people that met on those deck chairs became a community. That community started to fit out one of the empty units at the base of the apartment blocks. Uh, we gathered together the people who could donate furniture and screw together the furniture and uh, boil the kettle for the coffee dock. We had Eamon Holmes coming arriving uh, for the grand opening. What started with the deck chairs became this thing, this explosive thing that led to community and hundreds, thousands, uh, we reckon now possibly half a million people have come and enjoyed coffee uh, in that warm and welcoming space in Titanic Quarter. Thanks to what started with the deck chairs, thanks to not just sitting doing nothing when we were waiting, but kind of getting started. And a kind of a similar thing happened here in Beaver three years ago. Something started very small. Two frightened, lonely people uh, locked out in their house, thought that they would light a candle and would pop it out there on Facebook that they were going to light that candle every day uh, at six o'clock and would anybody uh, ever fancy maybe joining them? Uh, and well, loads of you guys know what happened. It wasn't always at six o'clock uh, and it was, oh, sometimes it was chaotic and often it was wonderful. But what started so small with one little flickering candle turned into this worldwide, as it turned out, uh, explosion of community and support and friendship and uh, togetherness throughout those dark days of lockdown. It started small, became huge. And that is, of course, uh, a kind of biblical principle. I keep going back to this story of uh, a crowd of 5,000 needing to be fed, uh, and it just was such a small thing, the offer of five loaves and two fish. I always get it the wrong way around. Is that right? Five loaves, two fish. Uh, such a small thing, but because they didn't just wait for something to fall out of the sky, because someone offered what they had, all of the crowd uh, were fed with brim to spare. So I truly believe this. Waiting doesn't mean doing nothing. You do what you can, when you can, with what you've got, with what God gave you. Uh, it doesn't mean just sitting passively waiting for something to happen. And John, I think, is a great example of that. But then another interesting thing about John, another re reason I love his story, well, love it. It's a kind of painful story in some ways because it's a reminder that waiting doesn't mean you'll get 
a happy ending. In fact, in John's case, uh, it all goes horribly wrong fairly quickly. Uh, You'll remember that uh, John was very critical of Herod as his word spread, and that meant that he was arrested and he was imprisoned. Uh, He really, really annoyed uh, Salome, and so the story then takes in some belly dancing. Ready for this? Anything I want. And uh, that's Herod, our old friend from the Christmas story. Uh, And he has promised, he loved the belly dance so much, uh, that he says to Salome she can have anything she wants. And what she wants is... I want on a silver platter. What on a silver platter? A ruby, a diamond, a pearl? I want the head of John the Baptist. Dun, dun, dun. And that is how the story for John ends his head on a silver platter. But even before that dramatic and very dark ending of the story, there's um, parts of the story where it all starts to go wrong for John even a little bit earlier than that. This is from John chapter 3. Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised Now, even just at that little start of the story, I can already see where this might be starting to go wrong because this is what, this has been John's thing. He's been out in the countryside baptizing people out in the wilderness and now Jesus is out in the countryside baptizing people out in the wilderness. What could possibly happen? Now, John also was baptizing at Aonon, because there was plenty of water, and I love that, plenty of water for both of you boys. You can all get along. And people were coming and being baptized. And this was before John was put in prison, before belly dancing and silver platters and all the rest of it. But guess what happens? An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now, oh, isn't that just how these things work in a nutshell? Two people doing what I guess must have looked like fundamentally the same thing. It even says in the text, there was plenty of water for both of them, but somebody is starting to argue and compare. Look, they're all going to him. His group's bigger and our group's smaller. They're starting to find wee reasons, like what even was it? The matter of ceremonial washing. What was it they were falling out over? But people were starting to find reasons to say, we are doing it right We are the right group. We're the good group. They are doing it wrong, but they are bigger and we are smaller and this isn't fair. Uh, And so uh, this little kind of rivalry starts happening between two groups who were fundamentally doing, ideally, theoretically, exactly the same thing. I call it a little bit of life of Brian energy. Are you the Judean people's front? Judean people's front. Well, the people's front of Judea. So apologies for a very old-fashioned film quote, but uh, yeah, that little idea that um, people who are trying their best to do the will of God, something just seems to happen. Uh, And so with John and his disciples and Jesus and his disciples and with the groups that are around them and watching them, so begins 2,000 years of religious people fighting over who is doing it right. And, you know, 2,000 years will follow. 
when wars will be fought and nations will be split and cities will be split and lives will be lost and lives will be ruined over the question of who is doing it right. And 2,000 years later, as you look out over the church spire strewn rooftops of Belfast, we live in a city, as uh, Michael reminded us last week, in a city with 115 different denominations. Not just 115 different church buildings. There are some streets of Belfast that feel like they have 115 different churches on them. Um, But across the city, the different denominations of whom we are one of the 115, uh, all having the same old row about who is doing it right. And the Judean popular people's front. Oh, yes. And the people's front of Judea. Yes. The people's front of Judea. Splitters. We're the people's front of Judea. Oh. I thought we were the popular front. People's front. Whatever happened to the popular front? eh? He's over there. So 2,000 years of rise about who is doing it right and who is the splitter. Uh, uh, And if you're waiting and hoping and praying for a day to come when the church is one and Christians have figured out how to get along, you might be waiting a long time. And isn't that true of all of our best and biggest dreams? You might be waiting a long, long time. If you're waiting for a day, and John might have said from his prison cell, if you're waiting for a day where the tyrants, uh, where the people who are wealthy and powerful just seem to get to do whatever they want without any accountability or without any of the consequences that the little people have to cope with, you might be waiting a long time. If you're waiting for a day when the world isn't so unequally divided, if you're waiting for a day when it's impossible for one person to make 120 million pounds per day while some of the rest of the world are in deep need, wondering whether to switch their heating on or not, you're going to be waiting for a long time. If you're dreaming of a day where we are governed by a government that governs, you might be waiting for a long time. If you're hoping for a day where a global pandemic doesn't just seem like an excuse to some people to chuck their mates and cronies million pounds in dodgy contracts, you might be waiting for a long time. If you're waiting for a day where some of the most vulnerable and desperate people in this world aren't met with a wave of hostility, you might be waiting for a long time. If you're waiting for a day where it feels like we've really woken up to the danger that we are wrecking this planet that we live on, and if you're waiting for a day where it feels like we're actually um, intentionally, properly, effectively uh, starting to try to restore it and save it, you might be waiting for a long time. And hey, it's easy to throw stones at some of the people we've seen up on the screen. Um, We're also waiting a long time for the change that we want to see in ourselves. The changes we're hoping for aren't just in governments and global events, they are in me. I'm waiting for the day when I trust more. I'm waiting for the day where I'm more forgiving and more patient and more loving and accepting of people. I'm waiting for the day when, like the 
uh, disciples of John when I'm not comparing myself with other people and saying, how come they get it easy? How come everything seems to work out for them? Uh, I'm waiting for the day when I don't have that resentment in me, when I don't see, when I see other people doing well. I'm waiting for the day when I really trust God for whatever is next. And I too might be waiting for a long time. And sometimes that waiting is painful, painful, painful. Waiting for a train can sometimes be a neutral kind of event. It's not painful, it's not great, it's not horrible. Uh, sometimes you can be just waiting at the platform and you know the sky is blue and you're watching the sky and listening to the birds and it's all well with the world. But sometimes waiting for a train can be horrific. Uh, it's absolutely freezing cold and you've only worn a thin coat and the rain is falling sideways straight at you and you're standing there uh, and you're bursting to go to the loo and there isn't a loo on the platform uh, and there's a family beside you with a screaming wean uh, and another child who's coughing. <laughs> and you can actually see the germs flying at you and there's a dodgy guy roaming around who looks like he's about to uh, uh, ask for your wallet and oh, you're just standing there thinking, and come on train come on come on come on sometimes waiting hurts uh, do you remember that song I'm sure we all sang it at some stage as kids why are we waiting with those very deep and meaningful words why are we waiting why are we waiting why are we waiting why oh why and we all sang it as we were sitting waiting for our dinner or sitting waiting for the car journey to end or whatever it was but those words burst from our soul sometimes why are we waiting why oh why for all the things that we dream of and hope for that are best for our world and for ourselves for our own characters uh, and for our own lives why are we waiting why oh why and it's okay to scream that out at God sometimes as Adrian said earlier the lamentations a good old moan in the presence of God. What a great phrase. Uh, it's okay to say to God, why, why are we waiting for such a long time? Um, I thought this was interesting. I saw this in the paper during the week. Um, screen groups are starting to become a thing. Have you seen this? Uh, screen groups are forming across the world where women gather in parks and public places to release their frustrations. And I'm like, could I, could I not do that as well? Is it a female only kind of a thing? It sounds like a great idea. Um, and also during the week, uh, Susie Dent's word of the day. Does anybody else uh, follow this? Susie Dent uh, on Wednesday or Thursday, I think um, this week, her word of the day was growlery. Uh, 1853 from Charles Dickens, a place you retreat to for the purposes of growling, muttering and letting off steam. Uh, and again, a growlery oh, can be a place where you have a good old moan uh, in the presence of God. My growlery uh, is a little road. I'll not tell you which road in case you ever uh, find me on it. Uh, up at the north coast, uh, a little path that snakes away off up into the hills, up into the countryside. I think I've maybe told you this story before. One time, a couple of years ago, when things were not going well, um, I went, uh, went up my growlery road, uh, my screaming place. Uh, screaming was what I needed to do. I was very upset um, and uh, went uh, and um, ranted and raved at God, shouted at the sky, shook my fist, screamed myself hoarse, genuinely hoarse. Uh, I could hardly talk whenever I got back later on. Um, and having uh, vented my spleen and got it all out into the open air, uh, I turned around uh, and looked around 
and there was a field of sheep um, who I hadn't spotted and they were all standing just looking at me. <laughs> kind of with that, what is up with your man? Kind of expression. So I always, I worry still to this day that I traumatise those sheep. I think it's possibly better if you're screaming and your growlery uh, happens in a place where nothing and nobody uh, but God can see you. But a thing to do in the presence of God uh, rather, than, rather than all on your own. But it's okay to shout out to God, why does this hurt so much? Why is there no happy ending uh, in sight to my waiting? So these are the reasons I just love John, because he gets going. He doesn't wait uh, passively uh, or just sit on his, on his tuffet uh, waiting for something to happen. He gets out there and gets out his deck chairs, lights his candle, does what he can with what he's got uh, in the time that he's got to, uh, to get things started. Uh, and because he's a reminder that waiting doesn't always lead to a happy ending. Life is not just that tidy. And even the life of faith is not that tidy to be able to say that what you're dreaming of and waiting for and praying for and hoping for, it's not necessarily going to happen uh, in the way that you want it to in your own lifetime. There's not necessarily a happy ending. So in some ways you could say, Pearl John, He's been waiting all this time. He's at the end of generations of people waiting. And then he realizes that the time is actually near. How awesome he gets to be the turn of the page. But then as soon as he gets started, his little group start arguing with another little group. And it all looks like it's starting to go wrong. And then arrest and then imprisonment and then belly dancing and then uh, head on a platter. Uh, it all looks like it goes so horribly wrong for me. You think, poor old John, if anybody had reason to be um, angry in the waiting, if anyone had reason to be resentful towards God in that time of waiting, it was him. But, 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 this is just amazing. When everybody's having the little argument between the two groups saying, how come everyone's going to be baptized by Jesus and they should all be baptized with us, we're doing it right, John replies, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. Uh, and then he uses this little example. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits, waits, and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He, that's Jesus, must become greater, and I must become less. So despite all that he goes through, despite all his waiting, despite the very unhappy ending uh, at the end of his whole story, John, how did he do this? How did he do this? Uh, looks at Jesus and he is so convinced that Jesus is the one that he was waiting for. And he's so convinced that Jesus is worth the wait. He says elsewhere, uh, Jesus is the one and um, the, the thong of whose sandals I am worthy to untie. He's so convinced that Jesus is worthy of the weight that all of the other pain of waiting pales in comparison. He must become greater and I must become less. Despite all of the pain, how did he do that? So, who's your favourite 
of the whole nativity story, if we were to ask you the same question as we asked of the kids gathering uh, in that little video, who's your favourite of donkeys, camels, um, Mary, Joseph, shepherds, magi, uh, all the rest of it, and John the Baptist, Isaiah, Elizabeth, Zechariah, uh, Simeon and Anna, all the other people who come in at the edge of the story. Who is your favourite? John, as I say, is mine, and it actually really strikes me that at this point in the story, it's those ordinary characters. It's not, Jesus is just a baby at this stage. His amazing ministry is yet to come. And in the nativity story, it's the ordinary characters who are the ones showing all the bravery and all the courage. They're the ones making all the sacrifices. Uh, Mary having to cope with the, the stares and the points and the accusing glares of a, you know, she was an unwed teenager uh, in, a, in a very judgmental culture. Um, Joseph having to, um, oh, all of the kind of pressure that he faced, the terror of the journey uh, after Jesus' birth, having to flee to Egypt. They were homeless. They were refugees. Um, uh, and then John, this firebrand preacher snuffed out by the, by the whim of a, of a tyrant, uh, all of them had so many reasons to be resentful in their waiting, but they were all convinced as Mary looked at the baby, as Joseph looked at the baby, as John uh, met Jesus uh, at the River Jordan, they were all convinced that Jesus was worth the wait and worth even the pain of their most painful wait. And here we are all these generations later, more pages have been turned, uh, more faith has been passed down father to son, father to son, more waiting is still happening and more waiting is still happening in our lives right now and painful it is at times and much as we need to shout at the sheep uh, or go out to the fields and scream or go to our growlery, um, waiting is very much real uh, in our world at this minute, at this time. And when I'm waiting and hoping and praying for things to work out, can I, like John, say these life-changing words that whatever I am worried and resentful about, whatever I'm finding difficult uh, at, this, at this time, can I look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you are worth the wait. You must become greater. I must become less. You must become greater. So maybe just close your eyes for a little moment and that verse. Can you find it in yourself? No matter what you're waiting for, hoping for, longing for. I rest my soul on Jesus when the mountains shake. I put my trust in Jesus the moment I awake. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>